Hello and welcome to Afroqueer. I'm your host, Sally Chum. It's Pride Month, and I hope everyone is having a wonderful Pride so far. Here at Afroqueer, we have an episode to help make it an even more memorable one. I have the privilege of interviewing someone who the Afroqueer team has been trying to talk to ever since we launched four seasons ago. Let me give you a clue. What if I were to say, Cameroon, Cameroon? And another clue, this person was the very first winner of RuPaul's Drag Race back in 2009. <laughs> know who I'm talking about yet? Offstage, he's known as Marshall Ngwa. On stage, he's the one, the only, drag artist extraordinaire, Bibi Zahara Benet. I remember watching him win that RuPaul Drag Race. It was such a thrill and so important to see up there a fellow African slaying it. It was truly a moment that we were all so proud of. In this interview, I wanted to know about the experiences that shaped his life and how he became Bibi. Would you like me to refer to you as Bibi or Marshall during the interview? What do you prefer? Whatever you feel like, you know, whatever the energy. <laughs> <laughs> You know what's so interesting? It's like, I really don't care, you know, because a lot of people call me BB just because that's what they used to. You know what I mean? And I feel like BB is not such a, like, specific gender in a way. So it really doesn't bother me. So let's just start from the very beginning, BB. Can you talk to us a little bit about, you know, where you're from and where you grew up? I was born and raised in West Africa, precisely Cameroon. I'm from a a family of five, you know. <laughs> um, I'm the second in the line. I have always been me. I was, you know, I, I always felt like I was this special child amongst other children, amongst my brothers and sisters, just because I felt, you know, not different, but I was not like everybody else. But at home, it still felt very comfortable. It wasn't middle class, a little bit upper <laughs> Of course, I went to boarding school, and that's where uh, that was very, very interesting because that's where you deal with living in school, and then you have to deal with sometimes the bullying and sometimes the calling out the names. But then I actually really, really made that work for me. How did you make that kind of environment work for you? Well, I mean, in school, when I was growing up, everybody looked at me a little bit different. You know, I didn't walk like everybody else. I didn't talk like everybody else, especially being a male. And back at home with, with African, the tradition, the culture, the things that you say males are more attracted to, whether that's football or sports or all that stuff. I wasn't, you know, I was the one that wanted to do food and nutrition as a class, you know, to learn how to cook. I was the one that was in the debate class and the drama class. And I was in the choir. I was conducting the choir. I was doing all these things that you wouldn't think a male would be that interested in. So it was very different. But I feel like the higher power always gave me favor because I think at a very, very young age, I had realized what my gift was. I had realized that I was someone who could gather people. I had realized that I had a lot of charm in me where people just naturally might not have understood everything about me, but would fall in love with me. They didn't laugh at me, but they would laugh with me. And then a huge part of it were also the girls in school. I always call them, they, they were my army. And that's really true. And that's why I love women so much, because I tell you, women protect, they really do. 
And the girls in school really protected me. They protected me from the bullying. They protected me from the calling names. At 19 years old, Marshall moved from Yaoundé, Cameroon to Minneapolis in the United States. That's a big journey, physically, emotionally, and there were lots of culture shocks. The first one was the snow. Because <laughs> <laughs> I came here, I came here when it was winter. I said, oh no, we're not doing this. Oh, we are not. <laughs> we're not doing this. That was shocking to me. I was like, oh no. Because back at home, it's like tropical, there's rain, warmth, all of that heat. Yeah, I've been through in those Minneapolis winters. It's a lot. I don't think you even get over Minneapolis winters, no matter how long. I mean, I've been here for how many years now? Like almost like 20 now. It's like, you don't get over it. She's there. She lingers around. She comes when she needs to come. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and you came to the U.S. And, and came for university, for college. Yes. I mean, I back at home, I had already graduated. But then, you know, coming here... My parents wanted me to continue and further my education. And so when I came to Minneapolis, I was actually going to MCTC, Minneapolis Community Technical College here. So I started and I tried. I tried, but I said, this is not for me. <laughs> this is not for me. I think my calling is different. How did you start performing? What was the moment? Oh, the moment. I knew growing up as a little boy, I was interested in music and singing. I was interested in fashion. I was interested in performance, hair, makeup, all of that. And I wasn't really sure what that was all about. And even as a little boy, you know, I would try to use those skills at home, you know. And my mom, you would think that an African mother would be like, oh, no, don't do this. No, don't do that. But my mom was very nurturing in that sense. She did not necessarily encourage it because, you know, I don't think African mothers or fathers even encourage the arts like that. But they allowed me to be able to still try and test and, you know, those different facets. Fast forward, when I came to Minneapolis and I was going to school, one of my very dear friends, Kathy Siemens, was like, hey, let me take you to a drag bar. I said, huh? She said, a drag bar. Like, she just assumed I would know what a drag bar was. I was like, what is a drag bar? She's like, girl, you don't know. I said, no. So she took me now to the drag bar, which is here um, in Minneapolis. And then all of a sudden, the show started and all these beautiful artists started walking out to do their opening number. DJ Pump the And when I tell you that my face fell so many times on the floor, and <laughs> it was just like I was in like la-la land. And that was my aha moment because that's when I realized like, oh my gosh, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. The whole idea of that kind of artistry, it made sense to me. And I was able to put all the puzzles together. And then in my mind, I was like, oh, my gosh, I'm not crazy, you know, because when you grow up and you don't see any of that in Cameroon, you don't see any of that kind of performance or over the top. So in your mind, you feel like there's something wrong with you as a child. But that was really the validation when I saw these artists. And I was like, oh, that's what I'm supposed to be doing. Three, two, one. All right, My first opportunity was performing with Cindy Lauper um, when she came to Minneapolis and they were doing a Pride Block party. She was looking for artists to go do Girls Just Want to Have Fun with her on stage. 
So your first time was on stage with Cindy Lauper. I know. Was isn't that epic, Val? That's a that's a moment. That's a moment. It was a moment. Yeah, the universe was like, this is what this is it. How did that feel though? Like, <laughs> this is your first time, and you're up there with such an enormous star. Like, how did that actually feel for you? It felt very normal. <laughs> <laughs> No, honestly, because I've done some modeling before where I have done some guy modeling and I've also done some androgyny stuff. But in terms of being full artistry, like full feminine illusion, that was my first time. So it wasn't really about, oh, I'm going on stage with Cindy Lauper, but it was more like, oh my gosh, I'm wearing all of this. My head hurts. All those bobby pins, you know, like things are in places that you're not supposed to be. So I was more focused on that than (laughs) being on stage with Cindy Lauper. And then also, I knew of Cindy Lauper, of course, growing up as a child, you hear those songs. But I don't know if you can relate to this, though, but the way we look at celebrities back at home, it's not really how, like, in America or the Western culture look at celebrities. We are not so anal about them. Like, oh, my God, like, we don't get so crazy. You know, we love them, but we don't get so, like, hyped up. So although I knew Cindy Lauper and I knew it was a big deal, I wasn't like, oh my gosh, like everybody was freaking out. And I was like, okay, you know, my head is hurting. You know what I mean? And that's just, (laughs) that's pretty much what it was. But I know it was epic. That performance with Cyndi Lauper was a massive breakthrough for BB. Next came years of really hard work, touring around the country, performing on talent or pageant shows, Back then, that was the way to be seen and appreciated and grow your career as a drag artist. And pageant winners were the celebrities in the queer community. BB was going from strength to strength, winning pageants, appearing on TV, putting on shows, just as another powerhouse drag artist was setting up a reality competition TV show. My name is Nea Marshall Kurina. I'm from West Africa, precisely Cameroon. BB, nice to meet you. I'm also known as BB Sahara Benay. What brought me to RuPaul's Drag Race? That's an interesting question. I was working with this amazing uh, photographer, Terry Hastings, and we had been doing a lot of work together. Back then with RuPaul's Drag Race, what people did not know is that you go online you would load up like your profile and your bio and people can go and vote for you. So Terry calls me and he's like, hey, there is this show called Drag Race, RuPaul's Drag Race, that's going to be happening. So can we load some of your pictures and do a profile because I think it'll be amazing for you. And at that time I was like, oh, you know, I don't know, you know, you know, maybe not, maybe let me think about it. And then I didn't do anything about it. And then the second time the producers came to Minneapolis to actually scout entertainers. They asked who are the entertainers they have to talk to. Of course, my name came up and I wasn't in town. So I the producers called and said, hey, we'd like you to submit your video and your audio. Like, we'd like you to audition for the show. And I was like, okay, yeah, I'm not in town. When I come in, I would do that. But I knew I was not going to do it. Because back then, I always felt like people laughed at drag instead of laughing with drag. Because I feel like a lot of times people did not understand the art form. 
So the third time, I remember being on stage, and RuPaul was actually in the audience. And when I was done performing, I went back to my dressing room, and I was taking off my makeup. Then uh, Shishi LaRue, who's also a friend to RuPaul, comes to the dressing room and introduces herself to me and says, hey, RuPaul is here and wants to talk to you. I say, oh, really? And so RuPaul comes, says, hey, I would love you to audition for my show. At that point, I was like, okay, if this keeps coming over and over, then maybe it's meant to be. And what was it like being on that show with other drag performers? It was so fast. <laughs> Remember, we were the very first season, so there wasn't really a blueprint of what the show would be and how it would, you know, what the challenges. And they just said, hey, bring four suitcases of whatever you have. Just bring four suitcases. That's all you can bring. And so that's what we did. And every time a challenge happened, we didn't know what it was. We didn't know what they were going to put us through or what we were going to do. When I went into this competition, it was very important for me to just show where I come from, to be able to show my culture, to be able to show who I am, my identity, because I knew that this was something where a lot of people were going to get to see. So that was more important to me to showcase who Bibi was or is. Yes. And you were the favorite. I mean, what was it like for you? You know, wherever you go, people are chanting Cameroon, Cameroon. <laughs> well, know? I mean, Cameroon should be paying me, honey. Okay. They should be paying me some royalties. I'm just saying. <laughs> okay. It's so kind of bittersweet, though, right? Because, you know, there's part of our culture that we really, really like, that it's just part of who we are, and there is a beauty in it, and you want the world to be able to experience it. But there's also that part that is not so good when it comes to queer uh, conversations, when it comes to women conversations, when it comes to all these conversations, that everything is against everything else. I have made my decision. The winner of RuPaul's Drag Race, the next drag superstar is BB. Congratulations, baby. BB, this is your moment. I pass the reins on to you, my dear. How did winning change your life? It was a big validation for me. It was almost like taking my report card to my parents and be like, hey, look at it. <laughs> because it's like when you come to this country, the one thing that immigrant parents, when they send you here, they want you to come and better your situation. And so they always focus more on the kind of jobs you get or the kind of professions you get to. You have to be the doctor, the lawyer, all of that. And so being this kind of an artist, when I had decided that this was what I was going to do, I had already made that decision regardless of what anybody would say, and that includes my parents. But there's always that part of you that wants that validation. And so winning that and being that on a national level, well, I knew that many people who know who I am, many... Africans who know who I am, it was very important for them to see that it had nothing to do with sexuality, but everything to do with the gift that is given to us and that there are so many different gifts that we all possess. This is mine and, and, and I can be successful through my gift. My queen, remember, if you can't love yourself, how are you going to love somebody else? 
Now walk. Did you hear from queer people in Cameroon, queer people from the continent or the diaspora, were people reaching out to you and saying what this meant to them? Remember back then, social media wasn't really the thing, honey. <laughs> so we didn't have that much Facebook. I mean, Facebook was just starting. We didn't have Instagram. We didn't have Twitter. But I had received so many emails. That's what I received from a lot of queer folks. And I still do. You know, now it's even better now because now you can have access to us through Instagram, through Twitter, through there's so many different um, channels. And it was so funny. I got way more appreciation and celebration than hate mail. Because there was some hate mail, but there is uh, there was a lot of people coming and saying, you know, I want I'm going through this, and just seeing you and the, seeing the representation means a lot, and that's why I always say it's a privilege to be where I am, but I also have a responsibility of what I put out there and how people get to access that because it does something to them, and you just don't know what people receive through your gift. Bibi's gift, his artistry, his journey through so many talent nights, through RuPaul's Drag Race, shows like Roar and Nubia, his family life, they are now the subject of an extraordinary documentary film. It's called Being Bibi. Can we make sure that when I take it off, my I'm not like, like my T-zones? How is my T-zone? Because we really need this face to look young. We're going for the youthfulness. Okay. It looks great. <laughs> BB does look great. And the love he enjoys from his family shines through in this scene. My young age, he loved performing. He loved entertaining. You know, getting people together to, you know, have a nice time. Oh, my sister! It just brings a difference to the world. I mean, I don't know. He spices it. He spices it. So... I guess, you know, it was just God's gift to the world. God's gift to us first, and then after us, then the world. The documentary team, led by Emily Branham, followed BB for 15 years. 15, honey. 15. Sometimes I look at myself and like, oh, I was really going through something. But I didn't even have time to spend time with the camera being on my face because I was going through the emotions of whatever was happening at that moment. So a lot of times I didn't even really know that the camera was there. A lot of the intimate moments were very intimate. So it was a journey. A journey that the film skillfully and very discreetly captures, including this scene, a family get-together where we meet BB's mother. But I don't know, how, how, did you guys, how did you guys feel the first time when I told you about the whole being on television and doing drag and stuff like that? Like, how it... Well, we're not, uh, we're not surprised because we knew that I, I, from childhood, you, you love such things. If God did not want him to do those things, he will not put it in him. There's a scene in the film where you're performing in Minneapolis and your family comes to see you perform. Was that the first time that they saw you perform live? And what was that, what was that like for you? That was the highlight. My siblings have seen me because my siblings have been very loving and caring. And even if they did not understand everything, they had always known this is their brother and this is what their brother does. And they would encourage and support because they saw me grow up as a child, right? So they know that now it makes sense why 
Marshall is being this artist. But my parents had never, ever seen me perform. I mean, they knew of what I did, but they were not watching Drag Race in Cameroon. <laughs> so they didn't really, like, get it until they came and watched me perform. It was very important that the first time my parents get to see me, it's not in a dark club at 2 a.m. in the morning with people drug <laughs> and whatever, you know, like it's a different kind of feel, you know, not for the parents, you know, at least for my kind of parents. So it was important that they see me in the glory of it all, which is a live band, lights, cameras, action, dancers, singers. Give it up for B.B. Zahara It was an amazing, amazing experience with them because that was the only time my dad got to see me perform before he passed. That's one of the highlights of this whole thing. So, that's so amazing. So, so beautiful. So, did that performance, did it change the relationship with your family or how they saw you? I always want to believe that BB is an experience, okay? <laughs> you need to, uh, BB is an experience. So, you know, you got to be there to get it, to see it, to witness it and stuff. I don't think it changed my relationship with them. I think. What it did is that it, it it made them understand more. It made my parents understand me more and understand the power of what I do. And, you know, being able to see fans there, people screaming and, and all of that, it, they, it made sense to them at that point. But it didn't change the relationship. They still, I mean, I'm still the same old Marshall to them. <laughs> so what do, you, what do you hope the impact of this film will have on the people that see it? I'm hoping that people get to watch my journey with my family and just allow themselves to want to understand and just lead with compassion, you know, because you will not understand everybody. You will not understand everything. And like my mom always says, they are just caretakers. We are just caretakers, but it's God who knows everything. You know, everybody sends me that message on Instagram, always quoting what my mama said. We're here to just be caretakers. The higher power takes care of the rest. Our duty here is just to love each other. Our duty here is not to judge people or judge other people's lives. If someone is giving, showing you love, show that love back. You might not understand everything about them, but all you have to do is love them. I just want to let you know Cameroon is a country and Africa is a continent. And just to let you know, we don't just live in herds and hunt lions. Just say. Are you nervous? Oh, you're not nervous? You should be nervous. Do you want to know why? It's because I look like your mother. But I'm built like your father. Just say. That was Bibi Zahara Benet from Cameroon. I hope you enjoyed listening to that conversation as much as I loved having it with Bibi, a very special drag artist. The film documenting his life is called Being Bibi. It was made by Emily Branham, and you can find it on Apple and Amazon Prime. But also go to the film website, beingbibimovie.com, to find out where you can watch it wherever you are in the world. We would also like to thank Emily Branham for giving us permission to use the film clips you heard.
This episode was written and produced by Penny Dale. Sound editing by Tevin Sudi. Afroqueer is executive produced by me, Sally Chum. Afroqueer is a production of AQ Studios. Our theme song is Power by Maya and the Big Sky. Afroqueer is supported by the Wellspring Philanthropic Fund and the Ford Foundation. You can follow us on all our social media platforms at Afroqueer Podcast, and you can listen to all our episodes on our website, afroqueerpodcast.com, or anywhere you get your podcasts. I'm Sally Chum. Thanks for listening. Power